So I want to take a moment now to thank the Digital Hub because they are the main sponsors for this season of InspireFest, the podcast. The Digital Hub is in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin City. It's a collaborative space and it's home to lots of technology and digital media companies. But it's more than just an office. My name is Sinead Dalton. I'm founder of Mashup Media. We are a digital content agency and we specialise in video content. We've been here for the last five years and we love it here. It's perfect environment for us. It's really creative and there's great collaboration between the different companies that work here. You can find out more about Sinead and lots of other innovators at thedigitalhub.com. Now, back to the show. Hi everyone and Happy New Year. Welcome to episode 10 of InspireFest, the podcast. In this episode, we get to meet two women who are doing very interesting things in science and tech. Patricia Scandlin is the founder and CEO of Soapbox Labs, which is a startup based in Dublin, Ireland. And Patricia works in the area of speech recognition systems. I think we're probably all familiar with things like Siri and Alexa. And I think it's pretty obvious how much speech recognition systems have come on in recent years. But there's still a bit of a gap when it comes to recognising younger voices. And that's something that Patricia is really working on. It's a really interesting area because I think, you know, sometimes we kind of develop technologies for particular sectors of the population and others can be left out. So Patricia is kind of, you know, moving into that area. We also talked to Dr. Ellen Roach, who works in the area of soft robotics. So Ellen has been working on a sleeve that can go over the heart and help it to pump if it's not working too well, which is pretty amazing to think about how a robot could be working inside you like that to, you know, to help you overcome an illness. So, yeah, let's start with Ellen, who gave a really visual talk at InspireFest. And if you get a chance to look at it online, I would recommend that you do. But um, here's what we talked about backstage. you work on the heart. Can you describe the heart to us from an engineering perspective? Sure. So the uh, heart, I guess, is a very efficient pump. Um, So it pumps the blood everywhere in the body. So for the size of it, it's really impressive. Um, And the amount of of beats in a lifetime without a whole lot of maintenance is is incredible. Um, To build a machine that would do that would be impressive. (laughs) I suppose with age and sometimes with illness, that machine can start to fail a little bit. And you are looking at a way to use robotics to help out. Can you explain what you're doing? Yes, so heart failure um, can happen for a number of reasons. Um, What I look specifically is at at heart failure after somebody has a heart attack and part of the muscle of the heart gets scarred and then the global function of the heart decreases. And we use um, soft robotics, which is one area of robotics where um, researchers use softer conformable materials to reproduce biological motion or to augment um, native biological function. So I work on a sleeve that goes around the heart to help the heart to beat more effectively um, in a heart failure patient. So the robot effectively gives the heart a little squeeze every so often, help it along? 
Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it kind of hugs the outside of the heart and gives it an extra push that it needs every time it ejects the blood. Can you tell us about where the idea for that came originally? Yeah. So it was during my PhD when I was learning about the field of soft robotics and I always had an interest in cardiac devices. I had worked in industry before and I was trying to come up with a way to merge the two somehow and um, I met with a surgeon at Boston Children's Hospital and he had a lot of trouble with um, the current solution for heart failure which uses this assist device that brings blood through a pump, um, like a mechanical pump, um, and it predisposes patients to blood clots. So he felt like he was replacing one disease with another, is what he said. Um, so I thought this might be a perfect solution if you can help the heart from the outside without contacting the blood um, with some kind of soft robot. It might be, might be the answer to this problem. The heart is a fascinating organ. It beats more frequently than every second. And in an average lifetime, it beats about three billion times. The right side of the heart pumps blood to the lungs where it's oxygenated. It goes back to the left side of the heart where it's pumped all around the body to give um, the body the oxygen and the energy it needs to perform daily functions. But like other organs and like every piece of machinery, things can go wrong and the heart can fail in different ways. Now, luckily for us, cardiac device engineering has helped a lot in recent years. And we can see different trends in the way cardiac devices are changing. Um, he, shown here in this picture are some um, implantable cardiac devices, a total artificial heart, a pacemaker, a stent. Some people in the audience may have some of the de these devices in them at the moment. But the trend is for things to move towards being softer and being more biological. So you were basically taking the, I suppose, the hardware in engineering terms yeah. that was there and augmenting it with this soft robotic rather than trying to do the function with something else yeah exactly yeah yeah so using the heart's own function and giving it a bit of a help instead of bypassing the heart and taking over the function of the heart with, the, with another machine so when you combine things like uh, you know the heart biology medicine and then engineering robotics do you work with a lot of different people to make this happen yeah absolutely yeah the team that we worked with on this particular project on and on most projects i've worked on is um, pretty big. Usually we have some mechanical engineers, biomedical engineers, could be material scientists and um, surgeons and maybe biologists as well to see the effect on you know, a tissue or cellular level. Do you find that those people sometimes don't start off speaking the same language, that they have to kind of get accustomed to each other? Yeah, absolutely. Especially I find surgeons and maybe engineers they just think very differently and um, I think it's nice biomedical engineers are kind of in that middle ground where they can communicate with both, that's the idea anyway. <laughs> and so when the communication works well you get something like this this great device which yeah. you have uh, you have a prototype of it now yeah, that yeah. it can augment heartbeat. Um, what's the next step for it? Yeah so at the moment we have uh, we have a number of prototypes, but um, we've only tested them short term, so we're going to move now to longer term um, studies before we w the, in animals before we go to humans um, and hopefully, you know, partner with the company to kind of get it along the regulatory pathway to commercialize it. 
the flexibility, literally, of soft yeah, robotics yeah, means yeah. that there's so many opportunities open. Can you tell us maybe about some of the opportunities and also the risks of soft robotics that you would see in the yeah. future? Yeah, so I think there's a huge range of opportunities because they're soft, they're less traumatic, they're less likely to injure, especially for implantable things where there's like a lot of soft organs in your abdomen or your chest. You don't want to... Um, yeah, I, I mean, putting something rigid in there is, is an inherent risk. So there's a huge amount of opportunities to mimic muscle and soft tissue. Um, in terms of risk, you know, they have to be actuated in some way. And if you're using air inside the body, pressurized air, um, there's a risk of a leak and failure. But that can be kind of prevented with safety mechanisms that will detect a leak and shut it off. And um, if it's not in the bloodstream, it's not as dramatic as, as if there's air in the bloodstream, you know. Um, so there's definitely, I think, the opportunities outweigh the risks and the risks can be mitigated with, with engineering. So. Um, thanks, Ellen. So, thanks very much. Uh, so could you time. just uh, state your name and what you do? Okay, Trish Scanlon, Soapbox Labs. Uh, we build children's speech recognition technology. So Trish, tell us about the uh, technology that you're developing. So adult speech recognition technology doesn't work for children. It works uh, probably for teenagers most of the time, but once you go below the age of 12, it gets progressively worse as children get younger. And that's because children get physically more different to adults as they get younger and behaviorally, actually, they get a lot different to adults. Um, so we are basically addressing that significant gap. I mean, voice interface is a massive area and children's speech technology just not, has not been catered for to date. And how are you using that speech technology to help children? So we... You know, when I started this out first, I kind of thought we were going to build, you know, educational technology and all this great stuff. Um, but what we just do now is just build the voice uh, technology part of it. So it's, it's cloud-based API. But we enable developers, uh, people who bring product to market for children, like um, a reading product for a child. So the voice technology acts like um, the computer's ears, if you want. And if you can imagine uh, an adult helping the child to read. So they listen, they correct, they prompt, they encourage. Speech technology can do the same thing, right? So you can imagine a child anywhere in the world on a smart device, so it could be an expensive iPad or a cheap Android, um, being helped to learn to read. And same goes then for English language learning or language learning in general, that you know the parent might not have the pronunciation, might not have the time, they might not even have the language, and a child can progress themselves. So, and then you could imagine anywhere that you see adult speech recognition working. So you see it in voice control, you know, voice searches, you know, anywhere that you see, you see creeping into everyday life, like, you know, Alexa play, play, you know, whatever, Justin Bieber on Spotify, like, you know. Right now it doesn't work, right? So, you know, a voice technology for kids will help that. You have just solved a huge mystery in our house, which is why uh, Alexa finds it so hard to understand my 10 year old. Soapbox Labs, we build children's speech recognition technology. But first of all, I'd like to just talk briefly about the rise of the voice interface. It's prolific. It's, it's coming. It's replacing keyboards. It's replacing touch. There's currently 26 companies that was counted by TechCrunch in the US alone working on speech technology. And you'll know a lot of these names. So things are beginning to change. And a lot of people might think, OK, you know, I tried speech technology a couple of years ago, kind of sucked, you know. Um, and they think they know speech technology. And I would encourage anybody who thinks that to download the Google app, uh, download SoundHound, try the speech technology and tell me if you're not impressed. Things have changed, that we've, we've reached a 95% accuracy. 
So if you did try it three years ago, five years ago, it was hugely frustrating. It got wrong so often that people just stopped using it. But things have changed. Uh, deep learning is a huge factor in that. And if you try it, you'll be impressed. And if you try it again in three months and six months, you will see though it's an evolution of a technology as well. So just, you know, stay tuned. 2017 was quite a, quite a year. Um, Forbes said it was going to be the year of the voice search. CES said it was the year of the voice interface. The Mary Merker report basically talked about 50% of searches on the internet being done through voice by 2020. And if you think that's a stretch, Google have said already, and this was July 2016, I believe, that 20% of uh, searches were already done by voice. Artificial intelligence systems learn over time. And I know Alexa has gotten better at understanding all of our different, different the nuances of our voices. So how, do you, how does your technology do that? So the likes of Alexa, like you're asking, if you want a system that will do adult and children and be agnostic, you're asking to boil the ocean. You know, it, this, the differences are too great. Um, so what our technology is, we've been collecting data for years. I've started this back in 2013. So all those technologies evolve as they, as they, as you speak to Alexa, it's storing your data and getting better. But it, it's, a, it's an evolution, it's AI, right? And the same thing goes for ours, but we're just doing it for kids. So again, you know, I wouldn't try and, we would say that, you know, if an adult tries our children's speech technology, they'll have about as much success as a child trying adult speech. Can you break it down a little more as to why it's so difficult for systems designed to, for adults to recognise children's voices? You mentioned that part of it is the nature of their voice, part of it is behavioural. So can you kind of break down what, what each of those are? Yeah, so in, like physically speaking, children have thinner, shorter vocal tracts, right? So they actually create a different pitch. You know, if I actually listen to my son my daughter on the phone, it's actually quite hard to say what they are. And if you think about it, male and female tends to be quite different. But the younger the child is, the actual difference are very insignificant. Um, and that actually creates different pitches, right? Different frequencies. So, you know, an adult male has quite low pitch uh, females tend to be overlapping but higher and then a teenager would overlap with the women and then you know as you know it depend on the, the child and the age of the child but as they get younger it gets progressively more higher pitch than females so you probably have more luck if you built a, a, a woman you know child recognizes than you would when you add in the men but what we but, but for a four or five year old it's actually so different to, to adults in general that again throwing them all into the same data set and building speech technology off of this asking because you're already you know you've got so many complexities around accents and all these different things when you try and take that massive difference um it just hasn't worked it doesn't work and it's not going to learn like no we just, just you need to separate them out like basically and behaviorally is the way the children parse sentences or, or the expressions that they use is that a difficulty when it comes down to children hesitate repeat stutter start um, they, you know, they, they'll sing, they'll whisper, they'll shout, we've heard it all, trust me. <laughs> and they're not compliant, actually. They don't, it's like a five-year-old isn't going to get around the idea of, oh, you know, we'll all start speaking different to the point where I might even put on an American accent if I want technology to work. Like, whereas children will just do what they want to do and they expect it to work. So they are a lot more, um, you do have to kind of work with what you're getting rather than asking them to comply with your technology. How does the technology deal with ambient noise, noisy environments, for instance? So part of the reason I started this was, um, you know, I used to work for Bell Labs and IBM Research and all that. And actually, I, several times during my long career in academia and research uh, was that if you collect data in a lab-like environment, 
nice and quiet, nice and clean, you know, and you build technology, yay, you got it to work. Like, now take that to the real world, the whole thing falls apart, right? So instead of doing that, I didn't even try, you know, I didn't go there with that, like, you know, because there was some data sets and there are some data sets out there, but they're just collected 15 years ago on, you know, high quality mics and nice quiet rooms, just like this one. And, you know, get it to work out there in the environment that fall apart, right? So um, that was the lesson. So from the get-go, I collected data in real-world environments to the point where I wouldn't even control the kids. I just, you ask them, you know, to give you data and then you just let them do whatever they're going to do and then deal with it. So what people try and do is the opposite. They try and control the situation because they know they can get speech recognition to work that way. And if you do that, it'll fail because that's how, not how it will be used in the real world. So, you know, that was included the noisy environments. So all that is actually in um, our data set. So deep learning is interesting. So what deep learning will do is take very, very large volumes of data. And what it does, if you think about it, even if there's background noise, even if we have different accents or pitches, whatever, it will seek to find the linguistic information. In it. So you know, if you give it 100 examples or 1,000 examples or 10,000 examples of the word, ah, it will learn to ignore the background noise and the difference between our physical makeups, because a man and a woman, and but it will know that all of these have said the word, it's a sound, ah, and that's what it seeks to find and, and then we'll make the rest redundant. And that's the difference of how we've been able to advance speech recognition through deep learning. Looking forward, what kind of generally risks are there in the field of, of speech recognition technology? I think children's speech, not just children's speech technology, voice technology in general is only going to get bigger. You're going to see, I mean, you know, this time next year, you know, they say, uh, something I said earlier was that um, 20% of Google searches were done in true voice in July 2016 and 50%, 60% of them maybe were in the last, people said, oh, they'd only ever done it for the first time in the last year. And, you know, millennials were over 50% and they'd used it in the last month. So you can see now by next year, it's just going to change that again and again. So I think it's an interesting one. I don't see risks for the speech technology industry. I just think it's just going to get bigger. You know, how you carve out a niche for yourself in that market is different. You know? What about the privacy issues around sort of enabling a device to, to have its microphone on, to store your voice data, what you're saying, picking up, because, you know, a, a device is sitting in the room, it's listening out for an instruction, which means it's listening to what's going on. Is that is that going to be a big barrier, do you think, to wider um, adoption? Number one, I would say to people, it's definitely not listening to everything you're saying because that would absolutely kill the... Uh, cl the cloud service provider so you can imagine like if Google is actually translating everything you say I guarantee you they would they're you know they're they would need like 20 million times more processor speed than they have right now so they can't possibly do that but what is constantly listening to is for keywords um, you know okay Google or Alexa or whatever like that um, for children that's a really interesting question because What's happened is you get these devices are now in the home and there are children using it, right? Under COPA compliance and soon EU GPRD, they're not allowed to do that without explicit permission from the parents. I'm fascinated how everybody's going to deal with this because nobody's addressing it. And it's very blatantly in the home, you know, to the point where some of the big providers actually have children in the ads, right? So what they have to be doing is if you market it to children and you know that children under the age of 13, I think, are using it, you need explicit permission from the parents. So we have started this in 2013. We have, from the get-go, been COPA compliant. And we are already already ready for GBRD because, you know, GBRD, GBRD, GBRD. Uh, 
because the e- the US were just so tough on, on it and, and audio was one of those things that they reckoned you know was uh, sensitive information so we're on top of that everything we do has been we've been really conscious of that for four years so for me it's not a problem I'm just fascinated how everybody else is going to deal with it because you know you want to download an app you know you get drop off the minute you start acting asking people for um, permissions and stuff so are they just going to suck up the fines when they get them or you know are they, you know, how is this going forward? I'm watching with, um, with great interest myself. That's really fascinating, actually, because there have been, you know, reported cases of kids kind of talking to Alexa and then next thing you know, something's ordered on Amazon or whatever, you know. It's but they shouldn't be taking the kid's speech because I know when I got my, the Alexa, I didn't give explicit permission for my kids to be from there. So it's never about privacy laws or never around the processing data, it's about the storage of data. So unless one of those companies can say they absolutely are not storing my child's data, they're, they're in violation. Now, they're not in violation in Ireland, they're in violation in the US, that they shouldn't be storing it. So are they? I don't know. But I mean, it's going to be a, a hotbed issue here. So everybody's got to get on board with that as well. Trish Scanlon, thank you so much for joining us today. Cheers. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> So we've heard two very different examples there of how technology can change our lives and you know it's the kind of story that InspireFest really brings forward so if you want to go to InspireFest this year in 2018 make sure you go to the website inspirefest.com and get tickets for the 20th and 21st of June in the Borgosh Energy Theatre in Dublin. Next week is the final episode of InspireFest the podcast and we'll get to talk to Anne-Marie Tomczak who is Mashable's UK editor. Anne-Marie is from Ireland and she's had a really interesting career moving from studying journalism here and working in Irish broadcast media, moving over to the BBC and then to Mashable and it was great to catch up with her at InspireFest so please do join us in the next episode. This episode was produced by Bureau. I've been Claire O'Connell. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget, folks, that InspireFest 2018 is on June the 21st and 22nd in the Borgosh Energy Theatre in Dublin. So do go along to InspireFest.com and check out the speakers, book your tickets and come along because you won't regret a minute of it. There are not only the super speakers on stage, but also wonderful people go to InspireFest and there's a lot of events and it's a huge amount of fun. So come along. It does exactly what it says. It is inspiring, but it is awesomely inspiring. It just blows your mind in so many different ways from ways of thinking about business to thinking about art to thinking about science to thinking about the future of education to learning about inventions that we wouldn't use but also learning about confidence and going for it and people have been really vulnerable and talking about agency and doing amazing things in the world it is one of the best conferences full stop regardless of tech conferences or science conferences I've ever attended